Welcome to the Biota Podcast. You can get more information on the Biota Podcast through biotacast, all one word, dot org. That's the new URL for the podcast. We will have on Bruce Damer at some stage to talk about what he is going to be doing, what his plans are for Biota. But to, to recap for those listening in who've listened to the early Biota Podcasts, Bruce Damer is using the biota.org domain for a new project associated with the origin of life. It might have some link back to the old Biota resources, but when he told me about this, I said, we've got to get the Biota podcast separate because obviously there are folks such as my guest, Anton Mikhailov, who have listened to the Biota podcast and feel very passionately about the stuff that is there. Anton, as this is your first time for us talking, would you like to introduce who you are and what your interests are in the field of artificial life? Yeah, it's uh, it's great to be on. Um, I am kind of just a hobbyist dabbler in artificial life, but I think I my main interests are kind of in evolving creatures that move about. I like to see stuff moving on the screen, so it's quite tactile or physically based. I like I'm interested in morphology and and movement and behavior of creatures, and I've done a couple of just um, personal hobby projects with simulating. Uh, kind of cellular bacterial kind of creatures and then bees. And I also uh, work uh, currently just have been working with uh, Professor Terrence Deacon at UC Berkeley on making an origins of life simulation for, for his theory. So yeah, just sort of, I'm just fascinated by all the different books and research in the area. And just very recently, I kind of stumbled, I was, I was thinking, Oh, I wonder if there's a podcast related to this. And I sort of found the biota <laughs> podcast. I don't know why the thought hadn't occurred to me earlier. Um, but literally probably about a half a year, a year ago, I just was on the bus and I was like, oh, it would be nice to listen to a podcast. Oh, how about a podcast about artificial life? And I think you're the only podcast that is for artificial so life. Which is, it's yeah. interesting because there was there was a robotics podcast that we tried to do some work with. And I've done a lot of outreach over the years to particular kinds of philosophy and some evolutionary biology and obviously there's kind of pro-science. And I mean, there are a variety of podcasts out there that I've featured on at one time or another just to be an instigator, even a science fiction podcast. I think maybe even a couple of science fiction podcasts that I've appeared on. But yeah, I think if, if ever you think of a niche hobby or a niche somewhat deep nerd pursuit, there's going to be a podcast associated with that. And I like the, <laughs> the Biota podcast series, which has been going on, well, 2006, I think was when I did the first recording. And it serves the test of time, and certainly I get a lot of feedback from folks such as yourself uh, that do listen back to the podcast series. In terms of the public-facing aspect to your work, is there open-source projects or anything that folks can have a look at that you've done with Artificial Life historically? No, unfortunately, I'm terrible at putting it out. Most of my kind of forward-facing work has been my professional work. I worked in at PlayStation doing virtual reality and input devices and research and stuff like that. So I think I'm kind of... I did a lot of uh, PR and talks and all of that stuff for my professional time. So when it comes to doing my own stuff, I'm, I get really lazy about actually doing the legwork. So I, I keep kicking around the idea of putting it up somewhere, like even on GitHub or something, just or like even just some articles about the random stuff. But the other thing is, it's also really humbling to. It, it, it's strange, you know, in the same way they sort of by accident discovered your podcast. Once in a while, just by accident discover a way better version of a simulation that I've written by like some random person with like three views on YouTube. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then it just, it's sort of really inspiring and also sometimes depressing because you think like, Oh, I've been really, you know, I think I did something quite interesting. And this person just is like, I did this in 1998 or something, Yeah, but no, no one has seen it and there's no way to search <laughs> for it because there's just no words to describe what you've done. Well, I think um, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, certainly we'll talk a little bit more about this in your question associated with making a career, but I think the difficulty is finding other like-minded folk. I mean, this mm. is the hardest problem for artificial life, which cyclically every decade becomes hard once again. The, you know, notion of artificial life winters and these kind of things that, you know, there's a period of vibrancy and then there's a period of no vibrancy. And we all, I mean, most of us at least who have long running projects go off and work on our long running projects. I mean, some people have kids and, you know, jobs that stop them from doing this stuff. But we'll talk a little bit more about that with your question, because I think I proposed a series of questions in this discussion, but you proposed a question, which I think is pretty seminal in terms of discussing 
like where we are currently and also some of the history of how we got here. Should I read out your question or would you like to give a preamble? To no, no, go for it. Okay. <laughs> Let's see how so it goes. You, you referenced one of the most fascinating hermit nomad-like characters in the field of artificial life, a gentleman by the name of Steve Grant. I'm not sure. I'm assuming, did you actually meet Steve or were you talking to him at a conference? Or No, or, this was just an email interchange. An email interchange, yes. Yeah. You, you proposed the question to Steve, is it possible to make a steady career out of working on A-Life? And his response was, let me know if you find a way, which is just quintessentially Steve. <laughs> I, I've often pointed to Steve through his, and I've said this, you've heard, probably heard me say this in a podcast with Steve on, that his hermetic lifestyle, the way that he can, you know, just live in isolated places and work on artificial life, and my assumption is that he doesn't eat, he appears not to sleep, <laughs> I mean, all the basic human functions seem to be slowed down in Steve in some regard. But that in general, is not really applicable. The the gold standard that I look for currently, and we'll talk a little bit more about why I say this is a gold standard, is just an ability to work on artificial life after hours. My project, No Belief, I've been working on for nearly 23 years now, and I still, literally, when I get off this call, I'm working on a, uh, <laughs> No Belief as a service, a web server mm. version of No Belief, which I hope to, you know, launch and I'm getting a lot of feedback from a few folk about this as a service, which means that anyone in the globe can firstly either take my visualization or write their own visualization, but more importantly, they can contribute individually to simulations or they can take real world data, which is where this gets really exciting, and feed real world data into the simulation to see if the simulation can be predictive. So there are all these kind of interesting things, but what's your view associated with the question? I mean you ask the question with some background perspective on this thing, I guess. Uh, yeah, it was actually, I think it just popped into my head randomly because partly because you've been in the field for so long. But the, the reason I asked Steve is, uh, I was in between jobs and, you know, I was looking, I, I was decently what, like well off. Like I wasn't like I had a good coast for a half a year or something mm. or a year if I really wanted to. But, you know, I have a family, so I, I need to sort of be a bit practical. I can't totally just run our savings into the ground. So I sort of, um, at the time, so I, I supported his, um, Grandroids project. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of vaguely had a contact with him via that. And so I just thought, Hey, why don't I send off an email to Steve? Cause you know, he did creatures and he was he, by a life standards. Anyway, is phenomenally successful. I think he considers it to be successful, but I think he, he really was. So I thought, hey, you know, he ran a company. This is, to me, as far as I could tell, this is the closest person who did a commercial thing with a life, like realistically as well, you know, because creatures had a deep, interesting simulation. It wasn't just kind of like a toy Tamagotchi thing. Like mm. he, he really put his a life hat on, you know, and it, maybe it was a bit popularized or whatever, you know, it's not so, so in, but it's a really good blend. I guess is what I'm saying. It's like the most commercial. It was a slash true to life thing. So anyway, I asked him and he's just basically replied what I told you. And I guess my thinking was, uh, would he, you know, inadvertently, maybe I was asking, should I start a company, mm. you know, trying to do this thing, you know, cause so, that was, I was at a crossroads in a way. Yeah. I mean, my perspective has always been that Rodney Brooks is probably the most successful. I mean, Steve is a great, mm. don't get me wrong. Steve is a great figurehead. He got an award from the queen. I mean, he's, He's got yeah. all possibilities associated, and he is genuinely someone who I enjoy talking with. Mm. But I think he has a very there's a candid Steve Grand, which most people don't get to hear. I've tried to tease some of it out in podcast recordings. Rodney Brooks, however, for a series of really curious and probably highly ethically charged reasons, has been able to take concepts in artificial life, primarily robotics. And turn it into things like the Roomba military mm -hmm. hardware, like a bunch of stuff which is questionable, and the Roomba. The field is so paved with people that don't want to be recognized as doing artificial life. Like they did formative work in the field and then just kind of removed themselves from the field. Mm. Uh, for small portions of my career, I've worked on Noble Ape full time. Um, mm. When I first came to this country 20 odd years ago now, I worked on startups that came directly from Noble Ape. And I did that for about 
nine months. But I was living very much the Steve Grand lifestyle. I mean, it, it's astonishing right. to me that I lived like that. And certainly it was before I got married. Mm. But my perspective is that for me, I view artificial life as a hobby. Mm. And I view it as a hobby that for me personally is very nurturing. It's enabled me to meet a number of people. I probably have the job I have today because of Noble Ape. In fact, I know that for a fact, which is rather mm. curious when I talk, when I say what I'm about to say. But for the past couple of years, I've had my hobby actively under attack by uh, another individual. And hmm. I've had every aspect of communication and things that build communities taken away from me by the way this individual has behaved with my intellectual property. So hmm. my ability to work on Noble Eight, I had to change my philosophy associated with this thing based on the aggressive actions of this individual. And I have taken the view that for me personally as an individual, working on Noble Eight is incredibly nurturing for me and enables me to experiment with technology in a way that is very, very liberating. But I need to take it as a monastic pursuit. It's not something mm. which I can, you know, income is so far removed from this thing. I'd just like to be able to have a job and work on Noble Eight. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's kind of where I ended up as well. Yeah. I think. Yeah. But because you don't, you don't necessarily want the income to taint it too much as well. Right. When you get to a position where it is a choice between working on artificial life or earning a regular income, you need to look. I mean, we've had a number of folks that have appeared on the podcast who professionally can no longer work on their artificial life. So mm. we have had a series of interesting problems through this thing where in order to survive people have had to stop their projects mm. um both explicitly because the people they're working for say you can't work on this anymore and also just because they have to earn an income and that takes away the time that they would be you know there's this notion of creative playtime which exists with developers currently particularly because there are now you know n number of computer programming languages and it's a serious number of evangelist zealots in each possible corner the average person that has any kind of technical skills needs to be able to have creative playtime just to learn one of these many languages amongst other mm. things. So I think the problem currently is so uh, pluralist that the notion that, for example, the games industry would rally behind artificial life in some regard, or one of the wide variety of corporations that have built technology epicenters on aspects of artificial life would come back and actually contribute money. My work with the International Society has very much been about, when I worked with them, was about, you know, how can the International Society start getting some tech money? Because there are tech companies that are using, as you probably well know, large elements of artificial life in their own development, but mm. not actually contributing back to the academic community, at least. Right. So... The problem is now multifold. And I think certainly what happened through my, you know, two years of nonsense is I realized that I was just alone, that the things, and I worked for about a decade as the head of an intellectual property rights organization. That gave me no benefit. The mm. stuff that I'd done with Biota for 12 plus years gave me no meaningful benefit. My work on Noble 8, still recognized within companies, didn't really give me any meaningful benefit in the circumstance. I really stood there alone against this guy and his lawyers who basically have still shut down Noble Ape as it's accessible through Google, as it's accessible through Facebook or Instagram or any of these technologies, which are ways in which people kind of gather momentum and support. So it's amazing. I haven't heard of that. I mean, that's like, that really puts it into perspective because I think I first heard about Noble Ape must've been eight or nine years ago or something. Mm. I came across it. You know, I, before I even knew much about artificial life, but I was kind of curious and I came across it and I thought, wow, this thing is amazing. And I was trying to find people referencing and there's like, it's like quiet. And the only thing I could think of is this <laughs> thing was so complicated that no one understood it. Well, um, that's that, part of the problem in some regard. Uh, the field. Yeah. So I, I actively spent about five years trying to get academics to utilize, particularly artificial life academics. But they all say that the complexity, like just by having, just by having undulating land, like literally land that has <laughs> gradients and stuff. Right. 
too complicated. Don't want to put evolution in that environment. You know, wow. weather. Okay. No, don't want to put evolution to too many steps. Give us five, oh, ten Jesus. years for that. And I think within that, I satirize it, but it's actually very much the case. And so my perspective is when I first started developing Oblate for about the first decade, this is before I, I mean, I had communication with Bruce Damer. I, I tried to get to one of the biota conferences, but really the academic field of artificial life didn't classify what I did as artificial life. Then there was a period of time where they kind of begrudgingly, because I did a lot of work for the community, said, maybe this guy's doing artificial life, you know. And then I was very active through biota and I tried, but now I don't even really care. I mean, the term, as I view it, is somewhat sullied as well, which kind of begs the question, why would one even like start recording podcasts about this thing going forward? But I think what's fascinating to me is that that hasn't changed my relationship with the body of work, nor has it really changed my relationship with the people. I mean, certainly about five years ago, Gerald de Jung, who's appeared on previous biota recordings, actually came through uh, the Bay Area. I went out to lunch with him. We went on a long walk. You have relationships with these people in this field that are, is based on a mutual understanding of your work and the time and energy that you put into this thing. But as a collective group, we've not been able to, you know, garner support collectively. And I well, that's what, that, yeah, that's yeah. what I find so bizarre. I mean, it's like you, you look at all the work being done and you can relate to pretty much all of it, no matter how different it is. Mm. You know, the people that are doing work like you're doing are probably still quite curious about cellular automata or, even like genetic algorithms on pieces of text or something like very far removed, but some kernel of that is still like, wow, that's, that's cool. I want to read that paper, even if I don't understand any of it. And yet there's just, there's no cohesion in some weird way. Yeah. I think the, the phenomena struck me probably about 15 years ago when I started reaching out to artificial life academics, this, there'd just been an A-Life conference and I started contacting the academics just for doing audio recordings for both podcasts. And they said to me, well, we've already done this. We've already published the papers and the, you know, proceedings. Just, you know, talk about the papers and the proceedings. Why do we need to be interviewed? And I was like, okay. But it's similarly, they don't use search. Like, they do work. They don't publish source code. There are standards which I adopted almost immediately from the open source community, which the academics in the field still are debating, like, really mm-hmm. kind of curiously. And what I love about the work a day job and do artificial life after hours is I get access to some of the most brilliant people through my day job to constantly mm. push me and motivate me. The whole notion of like writing artificial life s- simulations through functional programming, right? Which to mm. me is just blew the, you know, this is basically what I've been doing, but just in a methodological form, mm. some poor schmuck submitted a paper. I probably shouldn't say this out loud, but I'll say it out loud. <laughs> some poor schmuck submitted a paper to an A-Life conference a couple of years ago where I was one of the reviewers. I was the only reviewer that said functional programming on artificial life should be central and discussed. And the other two reviewers said, no, this is not ready. The field's not ready for this discussion. I was just like, okay. <laughs> now, I do hope to have on Tim Taylor. And mm. he is one of the few folks in the kind of academic sphere who has done some work in this regard. So there are a few individuals out there that are trying to push the boundaries, particularly with regards to how you move artificial life into modern technology. But yeah, it's just, it's a very divergent and fragmented field and the politics and the history of, of politics and curious bad faith and all this kind of stuff. There are a series of individuals who stand out through this to, you know, move past a lot of stuff. But certainly my experience is just that the hobbyist component to this thing just goes through periods. I think of Dave Kerr in particular. Dave Kerr is an individual who I got through some of the early bio podcasts. He's just someone who's always been a hobbyist. He just loves, you know, writing simulations, simple simulations. And sometimes he's moved more into Kickstarter. He's had a couple of really successful Kickstarter games through doing it. And that's just what he does. I think perhaps there's a model if you have a particular kind of simulation where you can run cyclical Kickstarters. I think obviously Steve Grant tried to do it, but Dave Kerr has been relatively successful. But Dave Kerr also is visually brilliant. Like the Mm. stuff that he visually creates organically, Mm. it just immediately, you know, he he was doing Minecraft before Minecraft was Minecraft. Like (laughs) he visually had that cue so his yeah. AI planet is Minecraft-esque. Mm. And I think there are certain like, folks that are just perfect vens for these various components, but the rest of us are 
you know, just fighting with alleged comedians. This kind of thing. <laughs> well, it's really interesting, yeah. you know, because I mean, for what it's worth, it's you know, I kind of like I said, I'm not a actual professional in the field, mm-hmm. so I sort of from the outside anyway. Maybe, maybe this is of some uh, solace. It, it all looks very rosy, and it looks mm-hmm. like an amazing community of like people doing really interesting work. And like you know, I've read a bunch of books coming out of this and. Potentially because there's this long history, it's yes. almost like, you know, the old, the starter conferences were what, like the eighties, right? Yes. Um, and so by now it's almost like history. <laughs> well, I think that's, that's perhaps part of the difficulty because certainly within the portion of the community, the academic community in particular, I wouldn't say there was a majority, but there's a good number of folk that love the history. And when I went to an A-Life conference, how many years ago it was now? It can't be a decade. It can't be. No, it must be, it must be six years ago now. There was clearly a majority contingent. I mean, these are the folks that said, you know, undulating landscapes were too complex. You know, they, they wanted, they loved the blocky walkers, right? They loved their yeah. early simulation. And that's great. I mean, you know, <laughs> people like yeah. vintage films as well, but it doesn't mean that cinema has stopped. So right, right, right. I think what's interesting is that within the hobbyist community and certainly folks that have worked on games and folks that are trying to integrate new technology into, you know, long running simulations there, you know, there's a community out there of eclectic folk, but you're right with the, you know, there have been small periods of time where we've been incredibly successful to kind of gather together in groups. And then you have long periods of time where basically everyone's working on their own stuff. And then we come back together. I mean, my hope was in restarting this podcast just to inject more voices in and get this thing, you know, communicative at least again. Yeah, I mean, I think that's maybe the hobbyist community comes at it without any kind of baggage or rules. Like, you know, I come from the games background, mm-hmm. so I kind of I look, you know, oftentimes I look at the the work and the papers and stuff, and I've sort of given up trying to figure out what they're actually doing. I just look at the pictures and try to grasp the idea because, like you said, <laughs> nobody publishes code, and oftentimes the paper doesn't even publish the method, so you're yes. not really sure. What, are you looking at a rendering or a drawing i'm not even sure (laughs) like is this running real time or does this take like eight weeks i'm i I have no idea so i think uh i've kind of you know maybe you you sort of take a blissful ignorance to it and say okay well let's try to run that real time and then or or something like that or try to make it look at least like that or try to take the ideas and sort of morph it into something your own so you know, maybe maybe you're right. Maybe I should kind of stay away and not fly too close to the sun. No, so I, to I speak. Don't, <laughs> don't get me wrong here, Anton. That is not what I'm saying at all. My view is this is a field which is motivated by instigation. And I think, I mean, what fascinated me about your initial email was that you referenced simulating bees. Mm-hmm. And the beautiful thing about simulating bees is, well, although this also for folks who are simulating termites caused a bit of concern, but you need to start dealing with the pressure, temperature, you know, if they create hives, hives evolve out of pressure and temperature circumstances as much as they evolve from swarm circumstances. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think all these things lend themselves to complexity. In terms of, describe your bee simulation for folks listening. Yeah, so I... um the kind of the genesis of it is I was randomly at a big maker fair or something and somebody had a talk about bees. They were mm. just talking about beekeeping and I never realized beekeeping was, well, I never realized that, that bees were so complex in mm. terms of the stuff that they do and that there's all these life cycles and all these different communication rules and all the different pheromone types. And what I found particularly fascinating is like all the different products they produced were interesting to humans, which was like kind of bizarre <laughs> so this weird coexistence with the beekeeper and the bees i never realized that i thought the beekeeper just sort of steals the honey and you know no, you get no and it's like it's this whole um symbiosis and i thought wow this is like really fascinating so then i got a book and then i sort of started reading about it and i said oh this looks really fun because uh previously to that i simulated kind of amoeba like creatures mm. and um i kind of i really like um simulating large amounts of creatures and i was going to do ants but then bees are much more maybe not much more interesting but they have like quite a lot of interesting behavior so let's sort of try that on and so i created a simulation um that is a grid-based simulation so it's it's not sort of analog so the bees move on a grid and i did that for speed reasons so they kind of look at their surroundings and they make a decision and then they sort of proceed from there uh, so it's kind of i also like hex grids so i thought oh, hex grids are great so we'll it's just a total mess to program, but it's great to, to look at. So 
that simulates something around uh, 10,000 bees. So my goal was to go between 10 and 50,000 because that's kind of, that seems to be an average hive size. And they go through their life cycle. So they have a sort of counter that takes them through their lifespan and they change roles based on um, essentially the simulated pheromone or I guess hormone that, that makes them change their jobs and develop over. So I tried to simulate as faithfully as I could sort of the processes. Uh, but then, like you said, after a certain point, I said, okay, well, what's kind of, what's the fundamental drive here? You know, cause I thought, that was, I thought about turning it into a game of some sort or some uh, self-sustaining thing. And it sort of occurred to me that, you know, the replication on, on the large scale, you know, cause you, I started seeing the bees as like a single organism, right? Which isn't obviously a novel thing, but I could sort of, I started feeling that firsthand after coding it, you know, how, how it all kind of holds together. And then the, the sort of, um, I started thinking about that whole ecosystem, that whole organism as one thing. So rather than simulating individual bees, I thought, okay, well, maybe I should consider the hive as a thing that splits or the swarm. And so the replication sort of is fairly obvious. You do the, you know, the queen does the mating flight and then the hive splits and all of that, which is fascinating and interesting in its own right. But that was like, that's sort of understandable. But then the kind of aha moment for me was that the whole hive itself essentially was breathing and drinking water and air by virtue of these bees kind of coming out and collecting water, um, fanning stuff. And then you almost start to see the bees as the organs, you know, and so things started to flip on their head for me because, you know, we talk about the queen bee as, you know, the kind of controller of the hive or something. That's very anthropomorphic. But the more you program these things, the more you sort of, at least I started feeling that the, the queen is really kind of just the reproductive organ of the hive. She's not really like in charge of anything. She's just secreting hormones to get her bits done. But then the bees are equally sort of secreting their hormones to get their bits done. So anyway, a bunch of these sort of penny drop moments happened for me. And yeah, I got as far as simulating fluid dynamics inside the hive. So I wrote, um, there's a famous sort of fast fluid simulation by Yostam. So I ported that to a hex grid and sort of, and I did a temperature and pressure simulation and tried to get because you basically like you said start to realize that the, the core thing that's driving the bees is temperature it's they need to get through the winter because it's too cold for them to fly in the winter they can't move because the body temperature drops too much so they have to sit in the hive and shiver to stay warm to survive and to shiver they need to eat a ton of honey because shivering requires energy so really the honey is just a way to get them through the winter like that's at least from my current understanding that's that's what's happening here. It's the, the honey reserve is just essentially a fat reserve to get you through the winter. And if that's the core mechanic that's happening here, um, then it's not just, you know, about getting the honey in and eating it. Like most of the simulations I've seen, it's, it's about simulating the temperature and then naturally having all the behaviors fall out of the fact that in the winter temperature drops with the heat going up, the water evaporates and, and so on. And so in the spirit of sort of having the behavior emerge from um, the actual physical mechanics, I started modeling all of that stuff and then sort of put my brakes on because I said, Jesus, if I'm doing a fluid simulation, maybe this is a bit extreme. But it's kind of encouraging to hear you say it because now I can kind of nerd out on physics simulation again. But, you know, I wanted to publish it as a sort of game and I still vaguely do. I still can't quite figure out what an actual satisfying game mechanic would be that also stays true to the simulation aspect. And you know, doing a fluid sim hit my like, pr- pragmatic breaks. I'm like, I think I'm in sort of rabbit hole land, <laughs> but maybe that's what it takes to do this thing realistically. The interesting thing is where the biology sits with this. I mean, the reason that I came to this perspective associated with, as you say, temperature and fluid was because they studied the actual genetics of these were termites, not bees. But in the case of the termites, very small genetic differences completely changed the way they built hives. And my perspective on that was that clearly there was certain sensitivity to pressure and temperature, which caused them to change the shape of the hive. So locally, the individual bees experience associated with these things forced it to build different shaped hives to adjust to their own pressure and temperature dynamics, because that's what was when you look at the different hives, that was what was changing was the temperature Mm. and pressure dynamics associated with each of the hives. So I put mm-hmm. this back to, you know, the academic and said, uh, and this was a Harvard academic, and said, you've got to start simulating pressure and temperature because you won't get to where you want to go to unless you have 
these environment simulation parameters that are part of your simulation. And I guess that's where I've come to with Noble Ape, that I've realized that complexity is really critical and understanding complexity in the context of evolutionary changes. What interests me about your description here is that I think a lot of people come to this thing through doing just that, through finding something that's interesting, actually coding it up. Obviously, coding is a skill that you have, you know, pr- primarily. It's, it's you know, the way in which one communicates in this realm. And you created the simulation. Then you started actually finding wonder within the simulation, which is also really critically important. And I guess my view is there are so many different ways to proceed here. I mean, certainly when I did talk with Steve Grand, it was very much associated with my view, which is you put it out open source and you spend tens of years tinkering. And if you're lucky, maybe Apple or Intel will pick up your simulation at some stage and take it in their own particular directions. But the open source at least made it accessible. And obviously, coming from where you come from, you have a background in games, at least, or at least seeing successful, you know, games makers use PlayStation around the world. Between these two extremes, there's also, I can't think of the fellow's name, but he created a series of artificial life flash games mm. and used flash games as a means of, I'm not sure if he made any money or whether he was making like $2 a game or whatever, but he used this as a means of propagating ideas in artificial life as well. And uh, I believe the gentleman's name also was Anton. That's sticking my head. (laughs) Anyway, so through all of this, my advice to you would be to continue, obviously. You know, you're coming to a crack addict and asking whether you should smoke more crack. (laughs) My advice to you is definitely continue. But what fascinates me through this as well is dimensionality. Now, you talked about hexes, and obviously hexes don't necessarily translate very well to three dimensions. But it would be fascinating to take your simulation from two dimensions to three dimensions. Have you thought yeah, about yeah. that? Yes, and I rapidly put the brakes on that too because <laughs> I believe, I mean, I've never shipped any personal project just to give you some backstory. Mm-hmm. I've shipped professional projects, so I'm not a total sort of failure of shipping, but I have yet to properly ship uh, anything, mm-hmm. you know, even, even out <laughs> as an open source like version 0.1 release. So I think. I have to have at least some sanity, I think. I'm not quite like hermit level where, I mean, maybe I am. Maybe I'll just end up doing this for, for 30 years. But I guess my question Eventually, is what stops really, you from currently putting stuff up? The only thing that honestly uh, has stopped me is, I mean, I could put on GitHub. Before GitHub, I I would have to have had a website and then I, I just well, absolutely... Well, there was SourceForge before GitHub. I mean, there were things that led up prior to GitHub. That's true. Yeah. That's true. I guess uh, my goal, like, what's the goal of putting it up? So my goal would be to uh, communicate an idea and find like-minded people. And maybe I'm I'm looking at it from my own perspective, but uh, personally, when I see source code, I'm just like, I'm not excited whatsoever. I want to see like a running binary or a lecture about something. Yeah, but I mean, you can do both. It's not an either or yeah. thing, right? I, I know, but, but I guess it's, I'd like to present it somehow and explain it because... Otherwise, it becomes a, you know, when I watch like a random YouTube video of somebody running like their own tool, you know, it's got all these, you know, shortcuts like VK and and it's just total madness, right? And there's like all this debug on the screen. And I find them fascinating, but they're completely uninterpretable. And so I kind of just imagine that would happen to the stuff that I put out, right? Like it's a thing, you put it out, there's a bunch of stuff moving on the screen, but then you have no idea how to control it. Maybe I should just embrace that and not worry about it, but yeah. I guess because I worked as a professional game developer, we do so much playtesting and polishing and thinking about how the user would feel. Like every time I think of putting this thing out, I just think, oh God, this is just going to be a total usability disaster. I mean, what we do with these simulations, and by all means, go on to GitHub and look at the state of the art that is on GitHub currently, because I think that would certainly make you realize very quickly. I mean, some developers sneeze and put it up on GitHub. I mean, my perspective is that GitHub has the barrier for entry for GitHub uploading and the notion that something needs to be polished before it goes up on GitHub. Spend some quality time on GitHub. There's plenty oh, of... Oh, no, I, I understand. I just hate that mentality. Well, yeah, but so, I mean, what is it? Uh, perfection is the enemy of good or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. So, so, but, but, that, but then you're asking me why I haven't added a 3D <laughs> But, I mean, I guess my view is that the stuff that I have done with Noble Ape, I mean, look, a JSON web interface. Look, Bob Bottram, who worked on Noble Ape for about four years, had a web server running in 2012 that did amazing 
like weather reports and stuff and also created Twitter accounts for the Noble Eight. So they're all tweeting. I mean, <laughs> these things have been done before by others. The stuff I'm doing is not particularly novel aside from the fact that it opens it up for, you know, Node.js developers to start getting involved with this thing. So, mm-hmm. I mean, my view is that the nature of what one does in open source and artificial life, specifically in open source, when you maintain something in the public, you do it slightly differently. I don't disagree with you associated with that. But that being said, coming and talking on a podcast is a wonderful introduction for people to your work. But even putting together just a couple of YouTube videos, even if you're one of those crazy guys that has debugging and K keys does something strange and all this goes up, just put it out there at least. So you can find the others in some very meaningful sense. It took me about three years working on Noble Ape, even having, you know, astrophysicists and folks involved early on before I had an active organic community around it. And I go for years without active organic communities, just getting occasional emails. I mean, my view is that the discipline associated with putting stuff online is just a creative discipline. And once you've done it, once, just once, Mm. it becomes infinitely easier just to make it the way in which you work on this stuff. And I think certainly Steve Grand and I, I finally forced Steve Grand's hand after about three years of wearing him down. And he did put one of his projects open source. And I uh, assisted, I think, in some regard. I don't know if I made active contributions to it. And for him, it was kind of like, eh, you know, eh. Wasn't, you know, it wasn't, but he, as you know, once you get an award from the Queen, putting something on GitHub. <laughs> so I think there are levels to this thing. But for me, my view is that appearing on a podcast and having a discussion is a wonderful thing. Don't get me wrong. But actually having source code online and getting feedback and starting to have like contributions of source code and people using your source and this kind of stuff. I mean, Bob Butcher moved from working on Noble 8 to creating a machine learning library that was incredibly successful. And he now does the distributed servers services package, which is relatively successful. Looking back on his time with Noble Ape, not particularly successful, but at least he had fun doing it. I think the experience of firstly putting a project online, but also discovering other projects. I mean, there are plenty of other projects up there as well that you could possibly download and contribute to and, you know, I think within the field of bees, it's interesting because not, I would love to have seen more bee related simulations, but as you well know, in the field, it's not particularly well governed. I do, I did try to put together something called Noble Insect, which was a insect port of Noble Ape, uh, without much success. It was more associated with trying to explore what insect cognition would be like in some uh-huh. practical sense, particularly in neural network models. So, I mean, I've dabbled a little bit with insects, and I think it's a field that really needs to have folks such as yourself stepping up and putting stuff open source. Well, I'm an event. Thank you for the encouragement. <laughs> I think I found one bee-related project mm. randomly again on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Like, I searched for hours, and I found nothing. And mm. then randomly, through some means, I found one, and it's like 10 years old as well. So it's like, I don't mm. understand how these things are not findable better, but... Um, yeah, I don't think I, I've seen one that is sort of the closest thing I've seen is someone put out a paper that was simulating the construction of uh, ant hills, hmm. and that was quite interesting. That uh, might have been the termite research from Harvard because they've done. I, yeah, yeah, and I, I, it looked pretty realistic, but um, yeah, I think your point about you know pressure and temperature stands, but yeah, I think uh, that was the closest thing, and that that definitely inspired me to try and do it in three D. Hmm. Part of the thing is you know. Uh, in hives anyway, in human-made hives, the bees don't really do much in 3D. They kind of go between the le- the the stories, essentially, of, mm. of the hive. And so sort of simple implementation of 3D that just is kind of stairs up, stairs down game style would be actually not difficult. And I sort of considered doing that sort of a, a layered 3D model as opposed to a full Minecraft style. You state that as a given, but my perspective, particularly spending any quality time with bees seems to indicate that even in the most convoluted environments they still are incredibly fascinating creatures to observe the level of complexity as you say just clearly the chemical dependencies in their communications the the notion of them having roles 
as you described, I think is really fascinating because that's really the only way to intelligibly describe bees. So even in the human created, you know, slat hives with some guy with a smoke machine coming over periodically and tending to them, there's still that complexity. They still are those creatures fundamentally within that thing. They're just, you know, forced into some human shaped box out of it. So you think that, that, that even a human shaped hive requires like a full 3D style? Well, I mean, if just if you look at the chemical, I mean, it's interesting that you started with the chemical research stuff of bees because that's the way that I, you know, think of bees as well. Even if you look at it in that light, the ability for the communication to exist into the hive, but also just the interactions with the, the external to hive world, I think is really important as well. I mean, bees, as they exist organically, <laughs> The hive is obviously of importance, but the way in which they travel, the distances that they travel, the way in which they identify, you know, areas, places where they collect pollen, the defensive behavior of bees, if you've ever been uh, tapped by bees, Mm. um, you have all these things which are collectively interesting phenomena. The survival aspects of bees exist independent of whether or not they're in a human hive. So I think the human-created hives, yes, in a simulation standpoint, but this also should point out that when I think of a bee simulation, I think of it as a hive plus the external environment as well. Right. And I think that's where it's particularly fascinating because in a hive, all the chemical communications, as you say, are limited not only by the hive but also by the density of bees in that hive and a Mm -hmm. variety of other factors. But when they... The same chemical communications exist when they roam, right? Right. So that is where it gets really fast because you need to simulate for both conditions. Yeah, I mean, I think I was trying to keep the actual programming fairly simple, Mm. partly because, actually, I really admire your, like, multi-threaded approach. I mean, I've done lots of parallel programming, but for a hobby project, I sort of didn't want to go down that (laughs) crazy-ass route. I mean, I've done, like, parallel simulations of, different islands of things but i've never sort of attempted to do it like to do the synchronization and and Mm. deal with all that madness i was sort of for sanity's sake i said okay this thing's going to be serial it's going to be on a cpu it's not going to be on the gpu Uh, and so because of that i sort of took some just choices you know about what i'm going to simulate because i did think that the numbers were important so i wanted to have at least ten thousand agents yeah and i wanted this thing to run uh quite rapidly because i wanted to see what you know what the behavior is over a year at least just so i can see it and i wanted to see it maybe sort of um greedily i wanted to see it like now so i wanted to run at least 10 times faster than real time so what biases do you have in serialization is it that each of them is executed for a time step and the interactions through this time step are in no way shared? Or is it literally that each is interacting its own serialized time step, which means that actually the order in which they're executed is important for the execution? I guess I, um, for sanity's sake, I like the simulation to be reproducible. Mm-hmm. And with with multi-threading, you have to jump through a lot of hoops to, to make it um, come out the same way every time. And it's like substantially more complicated at least from my experience, like it's, um, you know, just even the, the simple problem of, you know, a bee wants to move forward and there's nothing there right now, but then another bee moves into that area sort of in a separate thread. And now all of a sudden you have to kind of roll back that transaction or, uh, just give up or, or like you negotiate the transaction. I mean, I or think you negotiate, the, but the yeah, so like, you have, yeah. if you, if you have D T prior and then the current mm-hmm. time, and you basically move it through these time steps, then yes, you do have points of negotiation, but it still creates a reproduction. I mean, this notion that it's interesting because I've argued both ways on this podcast. So let me say in this time explicitly, I'm going to say there are ways in which you can program in threads, how many cores, whatever you're dealing with. So you do have reproducibility. And I think actually at scale to do individual simulation entities, serially you create so many artifacts actually through doing it that way mm. because basically all the choices are based on who actually gets to the processor first who's oh right but see i, I randomized the order every frame oh okay so that's that's important so that, that yeah is important. 
Yeah, so every to keep the bias down, I mm-hmm. basically shuffle the bees every single update step to make yeah. sure they all kind of but I shuffle it deterministically, right? Mm-hmm. So unlike the parallel version which, you know, naively anyway would shuffle it randomly mm-hmm. uh, every every run unless you, you do the tricks that you're sort of describing, which I, I personally just don't have much experience with. Like I'm aware of the sort of mm. uh or you know, ordered uh multi-threading literature and stuff and we've done it for several games that i've worked on but i just don't have personal practice enough to like attempt that in a personal project i guess yeah so i think just for time's sake i said okay i'm gonna go serial but i was aware of this problem that hey the order is gonna really matter and you could just you could see it you know like if you just do the naive serial thing it's not even about just the first b always getting you know the win or whatever it's just more things move in a weird kind of fashion because yeah earlier entities have priority to move into spaces or do their actions and then so it just looks wrong mm. um so yeah so I, I i for all simulations for a while now i've been randomizing um, my up my update order so at least i do that <laughs> but that just makes things slower <laughs> because now i have like no cache coherency when i'm updating things or i have to sort or do some other nonsense so it doesn't help the speed of it so but i mean i think I've sort of in my notebooks have doodled a GPU variant of this thing and kind of negotiating transactions as you, as you described. The only thing, I mean, I don't know how technical we want to dive into this, but <laughs> I mean, because <clears throat> it would be awesome to sort of sort it out. But I guess I've found cases, just broadly speaking, where the negotiation sort of depends on neighbors and that those depend on further neighbors and further neighbors and further neighbors. Just vague. Is, is that a thing? Is that solvable? Can you just kind of give me a hint of well, whether that space is yeah. quantized? I mean, when space, even when space isn't quantized, it doesn't actually because, because the physical space that these entities take up and the time cycle is such that sure, you might have a case where eight entities are all trying to enter the same thing in front. You know, they're all from all sides basically trying to make it in, but that very, very, very rarely happens. And in those kind of negotiations, you just you can have standoff, or you can have a deterministic but random, you know, representation of which one moves. I mean, that's at the point where you can actually move random in um, to, mm-hmm. to do that if you so desire. And the rules associated with that really aren't that bad. It's interesting actually because these kind of choices are not really that important in a variety of simulations, but in what you're describing, particularly associated with you know creating hides and spreading resources these are slightly more important but these kind of choices are interesting and i think probably merit some some discussion periodically but as you know it not in high density necessarily so i'm looking (laughs) through the list of topics that we we put up there we haven't talked about artificial life in the cloud i'd like to take and i'd like to do that in a future podcast if we may Mm. we haven't really talked about visualization that much either i mean from your perspective you said that the visualization was important, but also it appears to be something which is potentially negating you putting it up open source because you're concerned about it as well, right? Yeah, I think it's, it's, I basically live for it uh, as far as it goes for artificial life. Like I have very little excitement about stuff that sort of prints to the console, no matter what amazing result it is. Like I have to see it move. And I mean, I think it's just coming from games and stuff. That's kind of what makes me personally excited about it so i I think it's kind of and i think also you know if i want to be really sort of more highbrow about it i think it's it's a great hindrance that you would not use your visual system for analyzing what you're doing even if it's purely for visualization of um, you know debug data and in fact and i think that's just true so i think there's no real good argument for having a really spartan console simulation um no matter how sort of rigorous you are and non-gamey and whatever uh, so i think it's just yet another sense that you you should definitely engage because it's a powerful part of your brain in fact i've considered to integrate like auditory feedback as well mm-hmm. even for de- debug purposes like because that's you can pick out patterns immediately like like you said if there's some sort of update ordering issue that has a artifact that's hard to see visually with audio you'll hear you know maybe every time a b picks something up you make a click if there's some weird pattern that goes click and click, click and click, click and click, and you, you hear the pattern, like, oh crap, then I need to randomize this or that, or there's a loop here. So I, I, I'm like a really big believer in visualizing and doing that stuff. Uh, it hasn't, I guess it's been part of the reason, yeah, I wouldn't want to put it up because oftentimes, 
I guess I, I maybe what I want out of it is I want to put out a final product. Maybe that's just kind of I'm, I'm thinking of it as a as a thing I want to mm-hmm. make Le- less of a less of just putting it out there. Like I love having discussions with artificial life people, and I think that would be a huge motivator for me to get you know, meet new people and chat with them. But in terms of like that would be the the, the main thing. Like I would, I would I think I would not really want to deal with people sort of pushing me commits and things of that nature. Like I, I don't, I don't know if I'd want to be maintainer of a, of a thing just because like even at work, that's a painful process merging and all of this stuff. It's like, I'd rather just chat about stuff and then do it myself, I guess, because I take pleasure in doing it myself. I've traditionally thought, well, if I wanted to encourage people to think about stuff or meet people, I'd, I'd rather put out something that's like a finished product that communicates the idea. So I don't think it's the visualization so much that's, hindering me but i guess yeah maybe high standards for visualization potentially are but mm, maybe uh yeah i mean i think certainly visualization is really important for debugging purposes and particularly with regards to complexity you see a lot more with particular kinds of visualization it's typically it varies how well it's done so certainly you know visualization isn't a, a panacea for these kind of things i i love narrative and I mm. think narrative is probably, if you have a simulation that has narrative output, that is text-based fundamentally. You can also make it audio, obviously. But I think there are, again, there are a variety of different different possibilities um, that can all be explored. So here's, here's my plan, Anton. We've mm. left a bit of food for thought. We've created an audio recording that will go out to a, a, a group of listeners. We may get questions back from that. I would like to have the opportunity to chat with you maybe in a couple of three weeks' time, and mm-hmm. uh, explore some other topics as they have uh, sat by the wayside while we've talked about these main ones, uh, because it's really a wonderful opportunity to have a chance to chat with you. It's certainly the passion that you had for the artificial life simulation came through your introductory email, and it's really nice to have an opportunity to have a chance to chat with a new voice in this podcast as well. So if you wouldn't mind, if we can do this in a few weeks' time, uh, and explore some more topics that would be absolutely wonderful yeah yeah i'd love that it's been a big pleasure chatting with you as well and getting you know getting some feedback and encouragement as well i'll definitely reconsider my hermetic lifestyle <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't have to be totally hermetic but yes right i would right. certainly avoid being litigated by a multimillionaire. that certainly just avoid that whole Thing. If well, any, can, yeah, can you give me some guidance there, though? Because it so sounds like put, that's a put, contrary piece of advice. <laughs> if you put if you put the name of my simulation into a number of search engines, thankfully DuckDuckGo still supports my simulation, you get the whiff of what I've been experiencing. But what you miss is that this individual also has a relationship with my employer. Mm. So there is a complexity there. You also miss the fact that everything this individual appears publicly is all a facade and he's really a very aggressive and hostile businessman with very aggressive and hostile lawyers. And the curious thing is how he even came up with the idea to do what he has done for the past couple of years with this name. But what it has done precipitously is that he pays Instagram and a variety of technology companies to basically eliminate my intellectual property through their and he did this uh, intentionally, commercially, and his lawyers have communicated the seed of that idea to me, at least. So, yeah, the whole thing is very, very curious. It's more really about intellectual property rights, although when, you know, Catholic holidays and stuff are being promoted together with the name of my project and these kind of things, it becomes his views on pornography, just a wide variety of really curious stuff that has come through this thing. Hopefully, it is temporarily based. But mm. it really has changed my, from my general perspective of how I ran this thing with an intellectual property rights background, it's kind of changed my mind about a number of things. But it hasn't changed what I'm doing fundamentally. And particularly in podcast form, it certainly hasn't changed what I'm doing. So, so what would be your advice then if I put something out on GitHub, et cetera, like license it to all hell or what's well, the... Well, that's what I, the issue is primarily just associated with the name Noble Ape and me. That's the only mm. issue. So I could ch- change the name of the simulation. A number of people, in fact, it's pretty, it, a third of people that contact me about this stuff say, why don't you just change the name of the simulation? They tend to be millennial folk. I'll just put that out there. The <laughs> other two thirds who actually understand what 
23 years worth of work is like say hell no Tom just keep doing what you're doing and this thing will blow over and you know if any ever you receive any nonsense then you receive nonsense so it is interesting the, the two ways of time I would put I don't want to stop being creative based on these kind of threats for a start what mm. I would like to see is us as a community get slightly more um, which is something I've always tried to do with Biota or now uh, Biota cast.org as a community start thinking collectively about how we actually represent each other and you know our collective work which was really the theme of the biota podcast when it was an active entity and i think if that the fact that his lawyers completely denigrated my work in their correspondence with me and said that my work was meaningless and valueless just as the which is the standard thing that these kind of lawyers Mm -hmm. say but the fact that you know this is a point of debate and conjecture that, you know, this work has value is a very interesting problem that I've been discussing through these podcasts for many years. There's a podcast on the value problem and there's a series of podcasts following talking about that. Unfortunately, in this kind of hyper-capitalist world that we live in, our work needs to have some, irrespective of whether it was used by Apple and Intel or what have you, that still doesn't mean that it has value from an independent perspective, apparently. So, you know, there are all these problems. None of this should stop the way that you behave <laughs> with regards to your work, because that mm. is different. But certainly having had this experience, I have changed my perspective associated with what creative intellectual property looks like in a hyper-capitalist world. And I certainly appreciate that everything that we take for granted, particularly with regards to you'll put something out and you'll be able to find, people will be able to find it, that can be flattened very quickly. So, I mean, from my own experience, we're talking about historically about mm, three and a half thousand people came to my website and actively looked at it in a month period. Um, after this individual's behavior, 200 or less. Um, yeah. and that is very demonstrable in terms of not just open source contributions and communication, but just like active people are interested. So I think it is better always to put your stuff out there. But it is interesting to see the way in which these things can happen. I don't necessarily yeah, I mean, want to. Yeah, yeah. yeah if, if if there was a centralized, you know, launching point for everything a life, then mm. clearly, and that would presumably not get taken down because it would be too broad mm. or you know misdirected, okay. and then obviously your simulation would have a space, you know, a link from there. Then yes. presumably that would kind of keep it afloat. But because everyone's so distributed, um, there is no central point. I mean. Yeah, like once you're gone, you're sort of disappeared, right? And mm. everybody's just Google is the internet at this point for for many mm. people. Yeah, yeah. Have, having a having a larger ship to latch onto has some benefit, I guess. Yeah, you you don't want a situation where independently wealthy individuals can stop Google and you know these entities from getting. I mean, the kinds of corporate censorship that is rarely discussed, but is practically. And I've had long-standing experiences with uh, with Google um, associated with just like randomly having the site blocked in 2007 and then trying to get it reinstated. And mm. but this is actively someone paying right. for this not to happen. So yeah, it is all very curious. But one of the things that I'm not going to do is change the name. Um, there are going to be a variety of noble eight, you know, sub-project domains that I'm going to put out to see if I can get past some of this nonsense. But yeah, all fun it, stuff, Anton. Is there a centralized A Life website that I'm not aware of? <laughs> so there's A Life.org, which is the yeah. academic site. Um, historically, I maintain Biota.org, which is not going to be that going forward. There's Biotacast.org, which is where the podcast resides. I spent a period of maybe two or three years running a site called FreshSim.org. Mm. Uh, which is no longer uh, active. The main problem I found with that was the community wasn't at a size where contributions were being, you know, it was just, it got stale very quickly and I kept right. asking for people and it's kind of catch 22. There was a mm. document, there was a how to document for the longest time, which was probably from Usenet days, which had a long and was passed around, which had a long standing list of simulation projects. I don't know where that is in terms of currency. Mm. I periodically do GitHub 
searches, I'm now using GitLab um, over GitHub. Um, mm. So I periodically do searches for artificial life. And like I, like you, I think YouTube is an amazing resource. But unfortunately, it's a resource that is explicitly blocked from any time that I want to put up anything that says no Blake. So mm. it is a curious thing that it's a wonderful resource if it works. Wow. <laughs> anyway, that's yeah, that's, yeah. Let us not uh, mire our Friday anymore. Let us talk yeah. about three weeks time. And for the listeners who want to get in contact, um, please, um, the email address I use currently is funnily enough, a Gmail address. Um, my surname, <laughs> Bravo Alpha Romeo, Bravo Alpha Lima Echo Tango at gmail.com. I still maintain Tom at noble8.com as well. If you want to get in contact, if you have questions for Anton and I to discuss in three weeks time, please do get in contact. I will be talking hopefully with Bruce Daver at some stage. He and I had lunch maybe sometime this week, even. And uh, we talked a little bit about how uh, wonderful it would be to have a chance to chat with Anton. And similarly, Tim Taylor, who has been doing academic artificial life research, particularly server-based stuff, Hopefully, I will be talking with him within the next couple of months as well. Anton, it has been a real pleasure chatting with you this evening. I look forward to talking with you in a few weeks' time. Thank you. Thank you. Me too.